chapter 19, and then we're going to go immediately after this to Luke chapter 23. John chapter 19, we'll begin in verse 1, just to read, get caught up of where we are, and then we'll see what Luke has to say. Verse 1, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Jesus said to them, Behold, the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So then he handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now, please turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We'll see here, indeed, there is something to mourn about. We know the saying, I'll give you something to cry about. We've heard that before, right? And uh, this is quite different when Jesus says there is something to to weep about. I came across an article actually this morning by Tim Challies, and it is titled, What to Do While You Wait to Die. 
And we think about that, and it never ceases to amaze me in the times where I need things most for the sermon the Lord just provides, and he gives me parallels, and he impresses things upon my mind, and then things that maybe have happened earlier in the week or uh, something that may have happened to someone else. And all of these things the Lord allows and puts together in his providence to help me as I stand here before you this morning. Jesus was on his way to die. And we'll see what Jesus did at this time when he was at his, uh, he was suffering after he was scourged, before he was crucified. And Tim Challies has this article, What to Do While You Wait to Die. He says, a friend of mine recently went to be with the Lord after enduring a long battle with leukemia. In his final weeks, as his strength slowly faded away, he told his family that he wished he could write a book titled, What to Do While You Wait to Die. There'd be no time to write a book, but I did tell him I would gladly share on my blog whatever he was learning along the way. And indeed he did. He shared with uh, the blog, and I will share it with you. He expressed joy in the relationships God had blessed him with. As God gave him strength, he reached out to as many of these people as he could to thank and encourage them. This is as this man was dying. I am thankful to those who have been mentors to me. I'm young enough that many of those mentors are still alive, so I get to honor them and encourage them and just thank them so much for God's ministry in my life. On the other side, the Lord has given me pleasure and brotherhood in working shoulder to shoulder with men at church, men in different ministries, and that is just a great and wonderful thing. I certainly don't deserve it, but I love it. The Lord is so kind and so good. So the first thing to do while you wait to die is to invest in people. To invest in people. A committed evangelist, my friend, also called as many unbelievers as he could tell them about Jesus one last time. He also rejoiced at how the Lord was using his disease to challenge other people and to give them an opportunity to respond with faith and love. I'll shorten this up, but secondly, well, he says, I suppose the second thing to do when you are waiting to die is to be grateful and to look for every evidence of God's grace. What a glorious shedding that has been in his life. He's going to graduate to the finish line. This shiny armor that he was on him began to fall and clink away as he made steps towards that final, final round. When you store up treasures in heaven, it makes it much easier to leave this world behind. The third and final thing then is to submit to God's will and to rejoice that while we may leave this world as weak and helpless as when we arrived, we leave safe in the hands of a mighty God. So first, to consider from this article, the first thing to do while you wait to die is to invest in people, specifically lost people, by 
preaching the gospel to them. And to look, secondly, for every evidence of God's grace. And thirdly, knowing that we leave safe in the hands of a mighty God. Now, most of us in here, or perhaps all of us in here, are not preparing to die in the coming days, but we do not know when our last day will be. Jesus has much to say as he was going through what he was going through in this last time before the crucifixion. And he was but anything concerned about himself. He was concerned about others. Three points, main points for us this morning. First, reaching the individual. Reaching the individual. We begin Luke 23 and verse 26. Father, again, I ask for the help of the Holy Spirit of God as I would proclaim your word. We never know when our last day is. You know when my last day is, O God. Give me unction from on high, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When they led him away, they led Jesus away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and they placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. It was ordinarily the one who was sentenced to the crucifixion to carry his own cross to the site of execution. It was part of the final humiliation before death. And for the soldiers to solicit a bystander to carry the cross for someone tells us a lot. It tells us that Jesus was close to complete and utter physical collapse. He could not die, though, before being crucified, and they would make sure of that. Jesus was already close to death the night before when he was at complete emotional, physical, and spiritual exhaustion in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the Savior sweat drops of blood and was in complete agony. In the morning, he would be beaten badly, then scourged with whips that were laced with metal and bone fragments. These scourgings were so severe that it often cut to the bone and veins and other tissues were exposed. Indeed, Isaiah tells us he was marred beyond recognition of man. And so after this scourging, on the way, on this trail of tears to the the cross, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. The soldiers picked anyone that they wanted to. It made no difference to them. Simon had little or no choice in this. It's not as if he volunteered for this. He was coming in out of the country. The soldiers grabbed him and said, here, this is what you're going to do. What was Simon going to do? Was he going to argue with the soldiers and say, no, I'm not going to do that? No, he was not going to argue with them. He was going to do what they told him to do. Simon of Cyrene was from North Africa. Not many details about him, at least not here, while there are more details elsewhere. 
in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, which we will look at in a bit. But the question we have to consider is, why was someone else grabbed and commissioned to take up the cross of Jesus and continue on? Well, for one thing, as I mentioned, the physical conditions of our Lord was at the point of almost complete collapse. Some point out also that this is an illustration of our own Christian discipleship. As we're called like Simon to take up our cross and to carry it for Jesus. It seems best, however, to see this as a picture or as a symbol of our own condemnation. We are the ones who deserve to die for our sins, not the Lord Jesus Christ. We should see ourselves when we see Simon carrying the cross to Calvary, seeing the burden of our own sin and guilt. And when Jesus is nailed to that cross, we should be fully aware that he was dying in our place for the sins that we deserve to carry, for the condemnation that we deserve, and for the wrath that would remain on us, but was placed upon Jesus Christ. So they led him away. The Roman soldiers, remember Pilate, gave them over, gave Jesus over to their will, to the will of the crowds, to the will of the Jewish leaders and the, the Jewish people that, that were there saying, crucify, crucify. But the Romans ultimately were the ones, of course, as we know, that did the torturing and that did the crucifying. So they were leading him away. And Simon of Cyrene was minding his own. He had nothing to do with this. And he was ushered to follow after Jesus. This, let us not miss, a picture of divine grace. Just like the thief on the cross. Notice that both Simon and the thief or the criminal that was on the cross was spoken truth, they heard truth by Jesus. There was no relationship evangelism that was taking place here. There was no earning the right to speak to him truth. There was an imminency about this. And Jesus took the opportunity to share truth. Consider what Jesus was going through. Both were complete strangers, as it were. Both encountered Jesus, heard the word of God spoken, and responded. Reaching the individual. That is something Jesus was doing right here as he was marred beyond recognition of man, as he was on his way to the cross to die for sinners like us. He was reaching the individual. Secondly, he was reaching the multitudes. Look at verse 27. And following him was a large crowd of the people. Okay, this wasn't just six or seven people. A large crowd of the people and... 
of women who were mourning and lamenting him. A large crowd followed Jesus, as we see numerous times in his ministry. A large crowd now following him on this road to his crucifixion. Now, that does not mean that this large, large crowd, everyone in there was Christians. Everyone was following Jesus Christ with a genuine heart disposition that was changed by God. We have seen that in the Gospels, and that indeed is not the case. We should not take it to thinking that everyone in this large crowd was disciples of Jesus. Luke points out, and he makes it clear that there were women among this crowd, and Jesus addressed them specifically. And Luke has said things before in the gospel of Luke, has pointed this out. The women were mourning and lamenting him. But before we get into the details of these actions, this mourning and lamenting, we recognize that numerous times in Luke, he is careful to record these conversations that Jesus had with, with these ladies and how he treated women and what the response was to him. Because oftentimes, if you share the gospel with lost people and you tell them about Jesus, today they will say foolish and erroneous and ignorant things about what Jesus and Christianity says about uh, women and ladies. Oh, it suppresses them, and oh, it does this to them. Jesus sets women free, and we see this in the gospel. He sets sinners free, men and women, boys and girls. The only one who's suppressed is suppressing the truth that they know exists in their own unrighteousness. A quick survey. Uh, let's go to Luke chapter 7. We're in Luke. Let's look at some of these examples. Luke chapter 7, verse 37. Familiar account, starting verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house, and reclined at the table. Now there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume." Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman who is touching him is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, and he owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but she... Excuse me. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who reclined at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Talk about someone who liberates women from their sins. Look at chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. We'll just look at this real quick. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and a village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Look how the ladies responded and what they did. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So when we go to Luke 23, we see once again Jesus addressing women specifically. They were mourning and lamenting him. They were crying out loudly, and weeping extensively. Now, some of us may have seen this type of thing in person before, perhaps. Most of us have not. Some of us have probably seen it maybe on a documentary, whatever it may be. Some of us may have seen it at a funeral, a memorial of a, uh, someone who may have passed away of a different culture, and this is how they would respond. It's not surprising that this is happening, this open display of public grief. It was common in this day. And we still find this today in Middle Eastern culture and in Israel. Some of these women who were mourning and lamenting may have been disciples of Jesus Christ. But there's nothing that tells us that all of these women were disciples and that's why they were mourning and weeping. That's what they did in this culture when they expressed grief and sympathy for someone who they perceived as dying as an innocent victim. Their sadness of what was taking place was expressed in ways that made this obvious, mourning and lamenting. But Jesus, verse 28, turning to them, says, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. These daughters of Jerusalem, most of the true disciples of Jesus, the female disciples, the lady disciples of Jesus came from Galilee. Look at verse 49. And all of his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. So the disciples that were there with Jesus that happened to be ladies were from Galilee. And he addresses these other women as daughters of Jerusalem. Not necessarily meaning any of these ladies were true disciples of Jesus. Actually, it's unlikely that they were. Daughter of Jerusalem or those who inhabit Jerusalem. These ladies were showing their sympathy 
to this horrific scene before them. They recognized injustice and they responded by showing their sad and tender hearts rather than sticking their heads in the sand and growing more cold that is common with unregenerate today. The appropriate response was a communal lament. And that's indeed what was taking place. Jesus was reaching the individuals, Simon, the thief, or the criminal. He was reaching the multitudes. There was a large crowd, and these daughters of Jerusalem, and the disciples were somewhere as well. Reaching the multitudes, and third, reaching up to the Lord. Reaching up to the Lord. He says, weep for yourselves and for your children. They were missing the point of why they were weeping. And verse 29 explains, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They were indeed missing the point. Uh, Spurgeon says, Jesus did not rebuke these women because they were wrong, but because there was something still more necessary to be done for them to weep over, more so than for him. They needed to weep for themselves. Why? Because judgment was coming. Judgment was coming. Consider this, Jesus suffering, Jesus getting ready to be crucified, barely alive, as it were, in his physical humanity. Simon ushered in to carry his cross, and Jesus is warning of judgment to come. He's addressing these ladies who were weeping for him. And he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Indeed, there will be something for them to weep over. And indeed, there will be something for us to weep over as well. If we are to weep over the cross as Christians, as we preach the gospel to ourselves, It should be because of the sorrow over our sin and the gratitude that we have that he saved us from our sin and that he has given us eternal life. And blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Okay, we consider this statement, we consider the Old Testament. We consider for a woman to be barren was oftentimes considered a curse. But when the judgment of God came, it would be considered quite different. It would be considered a blessing. Why? What is Jesus referring to here? Well, there's two main events. Two main events that he's referring to here. First, Jesus is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, specifically. This was uh, 
there were several times that Luke, in Luke that Jesus has prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem. We see it in chapter 13, 19, and chapter 21. You can look at that on your own. In AD 70, the city was sacked completely by the Romans. So consider what Jesus says to these daughters of Jerusalem. And Philip Ryken says for us, Jesus predicted that when that terrible day came, women who were married with children would envy the single and the childless. Better not to have any children at all than to see them suffer famine and the sword. In the siege and fall of Jerusalem, the women and children of that city went through such terrible suffering that many of them must have wished to be destroyed. Consider if we, in our history, recent history, consider the the Holocaust. Consider those poor people who were there and their children were going and they had children and they knew what was going to happen to them. And consider those mothers there. What they must have been going through. Riken continues, they cried out for the mountains around the city to crush them and thus to deliver them once and for all from the misery of their distress. As difficult, practically speaking, as a way of an application, as it can be for one to be barren as a Christian or to be without a spouse or without a family or without a wife or without a husband, if you're a widow or whatever your circumstances may be. John Flavel says, let me be friendless, let me be childless, let me be poor, let me be anything rather than Christless, graceless, and a hopeless soul. And whatever your circumstances in, even if you, you, everyone in your family is not a Christian and you're the only one. God is in control of all of those circumstances. And we have our desires of, of who, of, and we plead with God, please save such one. And God, change my circumstances here. And God, I desire this here. But God knows what is best for us at this time. The main thing is that we have Christ. Difficult to apply, I hear you hearing these things and knowing the prophecies of Jesus the first Christians fled from Jerusalem before the Romans invaded God used this to spread his people out think of this think of those who fled Jerusalem Christians who fled Jerusalem before AD 70 before the Romans completely came in and and destroyed many. God used this to spread his people out, to spread the gospel. Persecution brings growth and can revive the people of God. We, as Americans, should not be surprised if God uses such tragedies in our land to bring America to its knees. Because we are nowhere there. 
We are nowhere there. Before we get to verse 30, let's look at verse 31. Before we look at verse 30 more, we'll look at verse 31. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Well, Jesus, speaking proverbially here, green wood, as we know, is not as easily burned as dry wood. Or at least in my case, maybe some of you can burn green wood very nicely. We've seen that it doesn't always take place. Jesus compares himself to a green and living branch, while the people of Israel are described as dry, dead wood. J.C. Ryle paraphrases it. If the Roman practiced such cruelties on me, he's paraphrasing what Jesus says. If the Romans practiced such cruelties on me, who am a, a green tree, the source of life, what will they do one day to your nation, which is like a barren, withered trunk, dead in trespasses and sins? If they're going to do this to Jesus, just wait what they're going to do to you. In other words, Jesus, the innocent, is suffering. And how great the suffering it was. On this road, after the scourging, after the mocking, mocking most likely still continued at this point. We see that the mocking continued when he was crucified. If anyone had a reason to be focused on oneself at that time, we would probably say that would be Jesus, considering what he was going through. And I say that with all reverence of our Lord and Savior. But follow my point. If anyone had an excuse... If anyone had an excuse not to proclaim the word, not to reach the lost individuals, not to reach the lost of the multitudes, not to warn, not to evangelize, at this point it was Jesus. What is your excuse? What is my excuse? Jesus had no excuses. Jesus was concerned for other people, specifically those who do not know him at this point, at this time. In verse 30, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. Jesus, of course, knew the fates of those in Jerusalem. It was because of his mercy that he called out to these daughters of Jerusalem to weep over the state of their souls and to repent of their sin. The people already took responsibility for what would happen to Jesus. Remember in Matthew 27, verse 25, his blood shall be on us and our children. They said this in their own words. Their rejection would lead to their destruction. Reichen, once again, he says, how sad it would be for someone to feel sorry for the sufferings of Jesus 
without feeling sorry enough for sin to go to him for the salvation he died to gain. Consider how Jesus called to these women to weep for their sins. And he continues to call out today, Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. They shall receive forgiveness. God used this disaster to punish this nation, as we call, of Israel for their sin. Yet his prophetic words also foreshadow the final judgment that is coming to all nations. So that's the second focus. Two focuses or events that is applied here. The first, the destruction of Jerusalem. The second was the judgment of God that is coming. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. The judgment of God indeed is coming. Romans chapter 1 speaks on this. Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. Isaiah, which I'll just read for us quickly, chapter 2. Verse 19, or verse 12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that the lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks, and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away the moles and the bats, their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. So we see this, it's in Hosea chapter 10, it's in Isaiah chapter 2, we find it here in Luke, and we also find it in Revelation chapter 6, let's turn there, Revelation chapter 6. Let me encourage you as you're turning there, as we go to our fellowship time afterwards this morning, that our conversation continues on these things of the Lord, that our conversation continues on what one thing that has blessed your heart or encouraged your heart or convicted you from this sermon. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, this being the sixth seal. Well, I'll just read verse 12. 
I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black and sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when he was shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island removed out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every freeman hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? We notice in verse 15, all classes of society, if I can put it that way, are included in the judgment of God. Unbelievers describe from the top to the beggar. All who are unbelievers being dealt with by God. And G.K. Beale says, God is no respecter of persons, but judges all on an equal basis, regardless of their social, political, or economic standing. The prominence in the judgment, though, is given to the rulers of this world. Start with them. Start with those who had so much responsibility given by God to rule well, to treat people well. Notice the response of unbelievers when, it come, when Jesus comes as judge. Run and hide. Well, you know the saying, you can run but you can't hide. Here you cannot do either one. Try, but it's a vain attempt to flee. They're saying, fall on us and hide us from his presence. No one will be able to escape when Jesus comes as the just judge. There will be no secret exit plans. No bug out shelters. No private jets for the wealthy. No one will be able to escape and hide from an omnipotent king of kings and lord of lords. Adam and Eve fled from the presence of God to no avail, and people without Christ continue to and will continue to try to avoid facing a God that they know exists. Notice what is feared more than death in verse 16. Hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That is what is feared and rightly so. From the presence of God. Verse 17 acknowledges the day and asks the question, the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? A lot of people who do not know Christ think in their foolish minds, as many of us would think and say silly, foolish, idiotic things, about what they're going to do when they meet God and how they're going to have a conversation with Him and how they think they're good enough to get to heaven when they will ultimately stand before Him, a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterate heart who did not turn to Jesus Christ. 
the presence of him, every knee will bow. As Christians, we will gladly bow to the Lamb. And those who do not know Christ will be forced to bow to the Lamb of God. Who is able to stand? Well, the answer is found in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, this multitude of Christians in heaven, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and they, they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Those who bow the knee to Jesus now are the ones who are able to stand. Lastly, in Luke 23, I'll just read this for you in verse 32. Luke tells us two others also who were criminals were being led astray, or led away, excuse me, led away. They were already led astray, led away to be put to death with him. So again, consider the scene. I'll just go back to Luke 23. Consider consider the scene here. Jesus, on his way to be crucified, on this road, beaten beyond recognition of man, marred, scourged. Simon of Cyrene carrying his cross, following Jesus. A large crowd there. And the women who Jesus addressed, daughters of Jerusalem. And these two other criminals, and the Romans, soldiers, and whoever else was there. And Jesus is proclaiming the word of God, concerned of their souls. These men, these criminals, could see and hear these things. Seeds planted, warning by Jesus' lips of judgment. Consider again the way Jesus evangelized versus the modern American way of evangelism that is completely, mostly, almost, totally incorrect. Seeds planted, warning of judgment. One of the criminals, as we recall, shortly after Jesus said these things, was radically converted. We, we have to look at it again. We have to see it again. We remember both criminals were hurling insults at Jesus Christ. As all three were crucified, Jesus and the two criminals, all were suffering greatly, and they were mocking him still. But one was changed by, by God's grace. Could it be that seeds were planted very briefly before when Jesus was warning, when Jesus was pleading with these daughters of Jerusalem, when he was pleading what would happen? Nothing is wasted with the word of God. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? For we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Pause there for a moment. Think about this. If this were your last day on earth, if, if God were to see to it that you would breathe no more on this day, are you 100% sure that you would be with the Lord Jesus Christ? Some of you are not sure of that. Some of you in here do not know Jesus Christ. And if this were to be your last day, you would spend eternity in hell. I plead with you to trust him today. Today you shall be with me in paradise, he says. This man was radically converted. Also, look at verse 47. Jesus, again, or verse 46, Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God. This Roman centurion began praising God. What kind of non-Christian praises God? It does not happen. He got converted to, certainly, this man was innocent. Jesus reaching the individuals, reaching the multitudes, pleading to, for those to reach up or reach out, reach up to the Lord as we would reach inwardly and see where we are with Christ. Then there's Simon of Cyrene. The Bible does not say, this is from Riken as well. The Bible does not say whether Simon of Cyrene never cried those tears or if he ever did. But it seems likely that he trusted in Jesus and also that he prayed for God to save his children from judgment. Although we do not find this detail in the Gospel of Luke, Mark tells us that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. There is only one reasonable explanation as to why Mark would think that this little piece of family history was of any interest to the readers of the Gospel. Alexander and Rufus were well-known figures of the early church. They were men like their father who followed Jesus to the cross and believed in him for salvation. Simon of Cyrene believed that judgment was coming, and therefore he made sure to get right with God and teach his family the gospel. How privileged he was to carry the cross. How wise he was to listen to Jesus. How joyful he will be on the day of judgment. And how happy we will be if we are wise enough to follow his example and come to Jesus Christ. Consider this, these applications. Jesus even as he was suffering, sought to comfort others. Sought to comfort others. Practically speaking, we can get inwardly focused at times, can we not? And we can think about ourselves, think about our situation. It can cause us to be paralyzed at times. It can cause us to be angry. It can cause us to be bitter. It causes us to be depressed. It causes us to be anxious. And I'm just talking about my own heart here this morning if we're inwardly focused, but when we're reaching out to others, when we're thinking of others, of comforting others, oftentimes that takes the focus off ourselves, does it not? 
Jesus, as he was suffering greatly, sought to comfort others, and we see that here. Secondly, he sought to warn others, to warn others of the judgment that is coming in season and out of season. Thirdly, he asks a question to get them thinking. He gives a a proverb to get them thinking. He warns the lost. He pleads for them. Fifthly, he pleads for them. In verse 34, look at this. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then, of course, we see the responses of those who wanted to be with Jesus. One of the criminals turned to Jesus. The centurion gets converted. And then the other response, look at this, verse 48. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And we'll look at that more as well. Not today. And all of his acquaintances, verse 49, which we read already, all of his acquaintances and the women who were there could saw all of this, heard much of this, and could testify of this of what took place. C.H. Spurgeon says, you do not wish others to be saved, you are not saved yourself. The heart and care of our Savior, his concern for the lost, even as he was suffering, he warns the daughters of Jerusalem, he saves a criminal from eternal judgment. The word of God was proclaimed, seeds were planted, A man from North Africa responds. Daughters of Jerusalem and some from the crowd heeded his warnings. Got out of Jerusalem before AD 70. A centurion saw what was happening. He was there. He praised God. What has this, any of this have to do with us? Everything has everything to do with us. We go through trials and tribulations In this life, without trials and tribulations, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. As we are going, even as we are suffering, we are to proclaim the good news. We are to plant seeds. And we see that people do respond. And we warn of the final judgment. And some will indeed escape that wrath to come. Prepare our hearts further. I will pray for us before our brother will come up and minister the Lord's table to us. God, please impress these things upon our minds and in our hearts this morning. Lord, if anything was said that was incorrect, Lord, please let it be just forgotten. Lord, and whatever was useful that was said, Lord, use it. We pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.